missing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another special edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and I'm all alone in the studio to guide you through our final Gen Con adventure. This time, we're talking about the art and science of brewing, with the help of our new friends at the Sun King Brewing Company. So let's hand it over to... Wait a second. It, you you really you really want to go in this direction? Just say the line. So let's hand it over to James, but in a fantasy setting, and I'll see you at the end of the episode. Oh, I hope this works. Welcome, friends and travelers. Gather around the table as I tell you the story of my journey that brought me and my companions to the realm of the Sun King. When Indiana Sciences invited us to be part of their Gen Con panel, like the good content creators we are, the Science Night team tried to find additional things to record and bring back to you. You know, kind of like squeezing all the blood from the stone that we could possibly do. And that brought me to the Sun King Brewing Company, which has been brewing up fantastic and fantastical concoctions to coincide with Gen Con since its move to Indianapolis. And in keeping with the spirit of Gen Con, I saw this as a sign, a call to adventure, if you will. (laughs) Boy, did we answer the call. The first step on this journey was an interview with Sun King's co-founder, Dave Colt, and wood cellar manager Andrew Hood at the tapping party for the official beer of Gen Con 2022, Dragon's Delight. So Steffi, Jason, and I traveled to beautiful downtown Indianapolis to talk about brewing and maybe slay a few dragons of our own. We are here in the kind of creepy Pan American Plaza in downtown Indianapolis with the founder and barrel aging manager that is for correct sun king brewery my name is andrew hood and i'm the wood cellar manager for sun king brewing company here in indianapolis indiana there we go <laughs> very nicely done sir <laughs> very nicely done yeah. my name is dave colt i'm the co-founder co-ceo and in charge of liquids for sun king brewing company in downtown Indianapolis. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that liquids are important to the brewing process, right? Yeah, I mean, it's better than solids. Solid beer, you ever had that before? It's not... Might be kind of kind of hard. Only on a dare. (laughs) I mean, you know... But is that still solid if you can swallow it in, you know... Uh, <laughs> what state? What state of matter? Well, I guess it's third state, but... state of matter. <laughs> right, it's phasing into. There we go. So I, I'm really curious. I drink. I mean, the viewers can't see what I look like, but take my word for it. I drink a fair amount of beer, uh, and I enjoy it, and I know it tastes good. But what does it take when you're kind of designing a new flavor? Or a new line, uh, as far as the ingredients and how you do everything. Oh, geez. Just explain uh, the brewing process in five short minutes. Right? <laughs> the way that we perceive it is, like, the the beer will either be singing to what it wants to do, 
like a lot of times we'll taste things and be like, oh, okay, so uh, I want to become a, you know, pecan pie inspired beer because it's got all these great notes or it's going to become this ras- raspberry cherry twist or, you know, yeah. whatever. So literally we just, we'll, we'll sample things and be like, okay, this is actually going in this direction and we want to like yeah. start focusing on that. That's like, that's so. like the artist's answer. Now, right. now I'm kind of <laughs> curious to see what the, like the co-founder and co-CEO's answer. Well, that's, that's how we operate when we're yeah. talking about the barrel aging program and other flavors going on from a very basic level. There are four ingredients in beer. You have water, which has so much variety in it. You have hops, malt and yeast and each one has its own permutation so when we're talking about a classic style or even something a little new but not necessarily on the experimental side which uh, Hood and I especially that kid uh, work on uh, you know those things you're like well what is an Oktoberfest and then you work your way backwards and make those recipes and develop those things so after 26 years now you know you kind of have a shorthand in your own mind like oh these things pair well and these are flavors that go well so being a brewer is kind of like being a chef and a mad scientist at the same time right you want it repeatable if it's something that wants to be repeatable so you bring the science in the background but knowing your ingredients and how they interplay and work together very important so i guess we should go back to the very beginning of this and maybe talk about like what does Sun King come from? Where, uh, where, what's the, what's the origin story of the Sun King Brewery? Co-founder Clay Robinson and I got to a point where we had to decide what the name of the beer was, and then we finally got to it, and I, you know, said, what is our purpose here on planet Earth, and what do we want to say about our brewery and express? So, as brew pub folks back in the day seasonality is a thing and here there weren't a whole lot of breweries who were providing that seasonality to our locale so we wanted to jailbreak that from pubs so that any place where you you consume beer has fun seasonal cool beers so what gives us seasons well it's our proximity to the sun sure sure so i was like talking to clay and i go so the sun is like king of our solar system and i went Sun King, I got the name. And he goes, I hate it. <laughs> so I want, oh, take that. No. Um, you know, he's like, it's great if we were in Florida or California, sunshine states. So I grabbed him by the arm and I drug him to the nearest window. And I said, what's that big-ass fiery ball in the sky, bud? And he goes, it's the sun, smartass. And I go, right, so the sun shines on us lowly Hoosiers like it does the great people of California. And then I went on to enumerate all of the cool, you know, produce and things that are grown here. And he was like, okay, yes. And then he talked to his sister who owns a PR company in Denver, Colorado that worked with, like, Starbucks and Coors and a bunch of other folks. And she's like, I think that name is awesome. You remove time and place, so if you want to sell beer anywhere, everybody loves the sun. Who is like, ah, anti-troglodytes, um, I guess. But other than those, <laughs> other than those folks, um, everybody's down for the sun. And so, and she said, plus you have king in your name, and that automatically makes it sound like you kick ass out of the there gate. You go. So let's talk about the barrel aging process and how dun, dun, dun. how does that change the product that you initially start with so. oh gosh so much oh no it, it changes the entire uh, palette of the beer and the aroma it's amazing would you say a fifth ingredient 
a fifth ingredient. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. But the, I think the amazing thing that people don't realize also is each barrel is different. And we'll start with one cask or we could do a beer with 10 casks. And each cask tastes different and smells different. Um, and that's the fun blending component of it and trying to build what you're trying to build with it. So uh, really fun stuff and weird. Is it different based on the wood or what was in it before? Or is it even just barrel to barrel with it, similar uh, uh, properties? Usually when we get barrels, we go down to Kentucky. We're really close. We're like less than two hours. Um, and it's amazing because a lot of the stuff that we'll get, I'll look at it and be like, okay, I can tell that was on the edge of like the Rick house, like towards a window. You can tell because how degraded the barrel is versus one that's like super polished and clean and doesn't really have a whole lot of rust on like the hoops or anything like that. Sure. Um, and you can tell there's definitely a difference or where it is in like the actual Rick house, whether it's in the bottom or the top, the top's getting more heat. So more things are being expressed. I mean, there's a whole, whole science behind everything. It's really fascinating in the uh, distilling world. And then taking that and transitioning that into beer, we're getting different flavors from, you know, the barrels maybe that were higher up versus the ones lower, maybe more vanilla versus more toffee and more, yeah, it's butterscotch. It's, it's really cool. It's like really building cool. a snowman. Yeah. You got to start <laughs> off with some flakes of snow. Sure. Who are all very unique little things and then bring them together to one cohesive unit. Build, building a harmony within that. <laughs> right. How many metaphors can we mix within right. one? <laughs> I have a question. You you mentioned pecan pie, vanilla. Like oh, yeah. when you look at a barrel, how can you be like, yeah, that's totally vanilla. That's that's pecan pie. It will be after okay. the process. Yeah, because but I will look at some and be like, well, that's a total piece of shit. There's no <laughs> way we're going to age anything in that. As a scientist, I'm thinking, okay, what kind of records are you keeping? How are you keeping your lab notebook? Oh, if you, if you don't have a result till the end here. How are you organizing it's, your thoughts? It is a long-term test, really, when you think about it. So we keep a digital record, and then there is a actual... I always put everything together, packet it. Everything's written out as well. So um, We also have two GCs, one yeah, with a mass spec FDI a input. As well. We do organoleptic tasting as well as yep. all of the other things. We also know from history, and tasting the, the spirit beforehand, so... The precursors of flavors exist in there. It's also a blend itself. Mm-hmm. And so going back to the one barrel versus a multitude of barrels to bring those Coxos flavors out. Yep. So do you feel like you have a pretty good sense, like when you have the pre-product, right, and you've got these flavors sort of melding before it's finished aging, right? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Like yeah. you have a good sense of what that's going to taste like in the end product based Correct. on what it tastes like right now? We basically will taste barrels generally. They We used to do it like six months. Now it's a little bit later because it was never close enough. It was never like where we wanted it, where we're like, okay, we really need to wait maybe like two or three more. And then usually we start tasting barrels at like eight or nine months and then go from there. That's the clean aging side. That's the clean aging side. sour so yeah. the sour is a whole nother kind of It's a whole nother ball game. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm finding out that there is so many variables into these different styles of, of beers that the fact that you're saying you have all of the scientific uh, equipment in the background so that you can create this uniform product that you can then sell totally makes sense to me now. And I'm assuming there's a big difference in your ability to create a uniform product in the barrel aging side as opposed to the normal like production run side. Is that correct? Would you say that we are trying to hit an idea of flavor as opposed to 
sunlight wants to taste like sunlight, wants to right. taste like sunlight. And here we want you, when you taste it, one year from the next to go, yes, this is X beer. Right. We definitely are actually really good at recreating the same thing year after year. Um, it's really the suppliers that we use. We go after the barrels that we want to reuse, like from Kentucky, or it could be rum, wherever. And then obviously ingredient and technique. And so it's just, it's really just dialing, blending. dialing that in and yeah. yeah. And blending too. Little things here and there. Can we talk about the first ingredient a little bit more? Water? The first ingredient yeah. is water. Yeah. That was the first yeah. thing you mentioned. And I'm curious to know how your sources of water vary here in Indianapolis uh, <laughs> and, and how you deal with that. As a resident of Indianapolis, I'm familiar with how the water yeah. is not exactly the same all across the city. And so I'm curious to know sort of how do you deal with that and what do you look for when you're looking at different different sources of water? So what we, what, how we handle water here and then invariably every place else because Florida is going to be its own challenge as well. Um, we... We take a look at the water source and we say, okay, we're not in Colorado. Right. Uh, so we don't just have this pure water that we can make magic happen. So we have to do some fun things with it. So what we start off with is uh, an RO filtration system. So we get out as much of the, you know, heavy, chunky uh, limestone. That is part of Basically, our... Basically, you just get the White River out of the White River. <laughs> right, but, you know, I mean, Indianapolis and then southern Indiana sits on a giant limestone ridge. So, you know, that's that's our bedrock that everything, you know, goes through. So our water as it sits after we dechlorinize or dechloramine it, uh, charcoal filtration, basically. That water is perfect for porters and stouts because of its, you know, alkalinity versus the acidity of the malt that we're adding from porters and stouts. So to make every other beer, I'll go back to Oktoberfest. Well, we're going to mimic the water of Munich with our city water and bring back in parts per million of alkalinity into the water supply so we can be very, you know, amoeba-like for all the all the water that we need for the you know different beers we're making i know the breweries are also very particular about the yeast strains that they do and in propagating that so they have a uniform uh yeast strain to go with beers what is the process in that i mean that is very much microbiology lab at that point correct oh yeah i mean like once again re reiterating back to our lab it's freaking awesome <laughs> We are very spoiled, so we cryogen different yeast strains, things that, like, so we have our, our different house yeasts, right? So we've got several different house strains, uh, which we single-cell isolate and then put onto media, grow up, like, actually create pitches in-house instead of actually having to go to a lab and, like, buy pitches from them. It's really neat because then we can take stuff that would come out of, like, our sour department, and then we can, uh, if there's some really neat yeast strain that we're like whoa this tastes like watermelon and blah 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 like whoa um then we can actually take and isolate that with our lab so we always have it some breweries have sort of this house character mm -hmm. or flavor um man we try to avoid that like the plague we want sure. the beer to taste like what it's supposed to taste like the intention so we will mix up the different yeast strains i think we have shoot just in brett strains we have banked in our minus 80 degree celsius fridge and we got like 30 brett strains yeah. that doesn't even go to 
you know, any oh, ale or lager strains, mixed too, cultures yeah. and all that kind of good stuff. So we try to avoid that. We do run typically four house yeast strains, and that's fairly uncommon. If you're a much smaller brewer, that's going to be fairly cumbersome. You're going to want to use a few strains over and over again. So, you know, at our size, at about 35,000 barrels, we and with the lab, as mm-hmm. alluded to, we can have that flexibility What's the favorite beer you've created, and why? Oh, man. (laughs) This perfectly pairs with my next question. All right. Oh, boy. Yeah, so for me, Uh, all the beers are like my children, (laughs) and how can you pick one or two? I would pick pick maybe a favorite one that, you know, I created on the non-barrel-age side, and then you can roll on from yours. Yeah. I would say probably Cherry Busey is one of my favorites. The the fruit characteristics and the things that come out of that are unbelievable. So Grapefruit Jungle is, you know, one of my favorites out of, you know, hundreds of beers that we've done. Um, you know, it ties, it's like a hundred-way tie for some amazing stuff that we've made. So I was listening to Little Stevie's Underground Garage, you know, late April, and I was kind of doing some raking and getting, you know, beds ready for springtime and planting tomatoes and such um and he was talking about you know how the the last weekend in march was a high holy holiday for rock and roll uh to that point like the first rock and roll concert happened that weekend and it lasted five minutes before the kids who were outside who didn't have tickets like stormed the doors and then the cops came so you know just a intense birth for a genre of music that's kind of changed the planet on that front so in further discussion like uh, the first single rock and roll single it's going to be sounding lame to kids but Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock was a game changer on the planet also became number one years after that rock and roll concert on the back of a movie called Blackboard Jungle so, Sidney Poitier, also groundbreaking. You have a black lead actor in the 50s, holy crap, who, you know, it's rock and roll background, inner city schools, intense stuff. And I went, damn it, I need to make a beer that honors that history. So, we created Grapefruit Jungle, Blackboard Jungle, you see the thing there. We used American hops, and American hops are known for being intense, brash, citrus in-your-face stuff, right? So then honoring the music part, well, we had to take three hops that worked in a harmony. You got to have three notes to make a chord to make music, rock and roll music. So I took um, a hop called Centennial, a hop called Amarillo, and a hop called Simcoe. And the three of them together and the taste experience for GFJ is like you are taking a grapefruit and you're not bothering to peel it, you're eating it all the way through. You're just taking the biggest bite you can. So you get the zest, you get the pith, and you get the juice of the whole damn thing. That's great. That is a great story that you definitely don't get from the can uh, without without some imagination, really. Um, and we talk a lot about storytelling in science, and this is a great, uh, great kind of 
version of storytelling and brewing. I want to depart from your favorites because we talked in the most recent episode about scientists should be willing to talk about their failures. Yeah. I don't want to say your failures, but what are some things that just really didn't work? Oh gosh, I think this is the first time actually for strawberry that we've had a strawberry beer that's worked like really well. It is a very yeah. tough ingredient to work with. Um, and thinking about like strawberry as a whole and the way that they uh, process it and talking like seedless, non-seedless, sure. dry, wet, like, I mean, it's, it's powder powder. And then of course it doesn't help that the experiments take like a year. <laughs> so <laughs> right. it's not like, you know, an overnight thing. So I think that's probably been like the hardest challenge. And it's finding the right ingredient for the right beer for that. We've too. been trying yeah. to get a strawberry sour since you started. Yeah, I mean, I've uh, been working with Sun King over eight years. So wow. yeah, <laughs> right. I, that one yeah. is really tough. There, sometimes when a beer, and it goes back to what uh, Andrew Hood, as we like to call him, Hoodie, says. Um, you know, you lean into what the beer is telling you, and sometimes you have this thought and your child will do this and think this and be this type of person and then they're like nah screw that fam we're gonna go crazy over here and then you have to understand and recognize that and then work toward that so we had a we had a barrel age triple rum barrel age triple that we were tasting and we were expecting this expression from it (laughs) and this other thing happened and we're I'll turn it over to you in just a second on that but we're just like damn it and I'm sitting there looking at Hood and I go but what it's saying is this and that turned into caramel apple triple (laughs) so it was I was thinking something else I was pulling samples I'm like oh this is going to be so awesome it's going to be like this rum triple and then all of a sudden I'm like Baking spice, apple pie, anyone? <laughs> right. So I'm like, we gotta it's lean like, into that. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And that that turned into caramel apple triple. So I love that. That's yeah. not, so that's a good version. That's not a failure. That's no. like a, as they call it, a happy accident, right? Happy. Yeah. I love happy accidents. Yeah, we all. Do. <laughs> happy do little tree and, and a flush of yeah. Awesome. Well, you've been very generous with your time. The last thing I want to ask you. And so I walked in with a donkey and a honeycomb. Um, As we finished up the first interview, I thought this would be the end of our Sun King side quest. But like any good campaign, a few good rolls opened up more opportunities, and Steffi and I were invited to tour the Sun King brewery the very next day to learn about brewing and check out their lab. Now, Jason failed a wisdom check and had to present at a virtual conference, so his part of this adventure has come to an end. And we'll continue this tale in a moment, but first, a message from another podcast that I think you will enjoy. Can you hear me? Do you smell the foul corruption? Things get a little strange here. And what about me? Like... Really strange. Grotesque stench of rotten flesh. Yet consider this an invitation to our humble podcast. I'm only just starting. Just search, and we'll be waiting to greet you with a big hello. Come here. And welcome to Pulp from Beyond the Veil.
After an evening of much rejoicing and losing Jason to the tyranny of online conferences, Steffi and I met back up with Sun King co-founder Dave Holt at their Indianapolis brewery to learn more about the process of brewing and the science that goes into it. We began in their lab, where lab manager Kevin Smoller showed us their setup to make sure the artistry of brewing makes it into the can, and how they ensure a consistent high-quality product makes it to you. Oh, wow, this is like a legit lab. Oh, my God! <laughs> Can I take a picture? Wow! Just don't get all the trade it's secrets. Right next There's to, like, everything. Wow! I'm just kind of looking around right now and this is very much like a microbiology lab in, in some version. So what exactly do you do in this room? <laughs> if, oh, you could, if you can kind of condense that into yeah. a, a manageable slice. Absolutely. Our, our biggest concern with making beer is always contamination, right? The whole point of making a brewing is starting with a large quantity of sugar water called wort. Uh, we do about 1,800 gallons of sugar water at a time. And the whole goal is to add a single species of yeast to that without letting anything else in there. So a lot of breweries actually maintain the same levels of cleanliness as hospitals because nothing's going to make you sick, but if a bacteria gets into our beer, now we have a sour beer. Sure, we don't sure. want that. Not always, at least. Uh, so our lab is really designed to a monitor for contamination. Uh, we also do a lot of yeast work as well. Uh, we have about 80 different yeast strains we can work with. We do single uh, propagations from single colonies on plates. Uh, you see a bunch of uh, flasks back there spinning. That's new yeast strains are propping up to brew into next week. Uh, so those four back there will each make about, in total, about 100 barrels worth of beer or 200 kegs of beer by next, starting next Wednesday. Uh, as well as maintaining profiles for our core brands. Every one of our core beers will run through our mass spectrometer uh, to put out or make up a full flavor profile. A lot of things that should be in there. Esters, aldehydes, alcohols, and monitor them. So monitor each fermentation, make sure we're hitting the right terminal gravities, the correct ABV, and then all of that data combined is then paired to what our sensor panel goes through. We have a whole panel of about 20 people that taste our beers in a blind setting, they use the app to track all the data, and we sort of make sure that everything we put out that what it looks A, great on paper, and B, also tastes good. Uh, I have a master's in biology and a master's in forensic science. But what is the path that got you from forensic science to this? Uh, well, I was working in the taproom part-time during grad school, just honestly for the free beer. Um, <laughs> I had to get away from the lab space for a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, there's a really good, nice overlap, because forensics is all about keeping things clean, mm -hmm. identifying problems, and where do they come from? Uh, it's sure. all about working backwards from issues, and this is what quality control in a brewery is. If there is an issue, A, avoiding issues, but they do come up inevitably, it doesn't matter how good you are, finding out where they came from. So we do PCR here even. Uh, we do uh, using a mass spec, which is great used in forensic labs for drug chemistry. Mm -hmm. uh, clearly the PCR for uh, DNA identification of crime scenes, but here it's for, is it bacteria? Sure. Is it wild yeast? Is it lactobacillus? Whatever. So really a ton of overlap between forensics and beer labs because we use a lot of the same equipment Absolutely. for very different reasons. Much less blood and semen here, but um, there is an overlap and it's kind of neat to see how we can... I can take what I've known for years mm -hmm. and then apply it to the beer science world of things. Sure. It's been cool. So last night we talked more about like the artistry of brewing. Mm -hmm. So now we're we're getting to the point. Is does it ever like did the two sides ever butt heads? Do some of the other brewers come in and be like, I'd like to have this uh, kind of this tapestry woven with this beer and you're like, 
I don't, I don't know how we're gonna get that. Artists is all about it's you know it's ethereal. It's it can mm -hmm. be whatever it wants to be. Science says, hey, maybe we could do this. And sure. Kind of, the connection between art and science and beer is you need both of them. Right. You need to, if you're Absolutely. a straight scientist without any creativity, your beer's gonna be boring as hell. Yeah. If you're a street artist that has no science background, well, good luck. Who knows what's gonna happen? So you need to have that level of creativity yet be able to understand the brewing process, the ingredients, how yeast work, just to get everything to coalesce in a single mm. finished vision. It's part mad scientist, part chef, and so the chef is the artistry part sure. and the science is the repeatability. So cool, you made anybody can make one good beer in their lifetime accidentally, but it takes perseverance to make it multiple times. Yeah, art sounds a lot prettier, science is more practical, together they're a lovely marriage that can make a really awesome product. Yeah. Are there any any beers or any styles that you do that are more difficult to repeat uh, as far as turning into something that could be like a flagship or something that's always going to be available as opposed to something that's going to be like a smaller run? Yes, and there, I, you kind of look at that from a couple of perspectives. And one I always like to bring up is our flagship beers are something like Cream Ale, which is a blonde, pretty pale beer. Uh, in my mind, that's the hardest beer we make because mm -hmm. they're so light that any sort of thing we mess up is going to be very noticeable to consumer. Sure. If it's a big Imperial Stout or big double IPA, again, those are still hard beers to brew, but there's a little more leeway for mistakes to happen. With the Cream Ale, there's nothing to hide behind. If that beer is too bitter or the color's wrong or if there's any sort of off flavor, it's going to be abundantly apparent right away. Uh, the point I think Dave might make with other things is, you know, uh, IPAs are very hard because hops change every year. It's mm -hmm. a it's a crop. Mm -hmm. it, it changes every year, and with the climate crisis going on, hop varieties are very much changing in flavor. So we're going to rely on a specific hop variety to have a specific flavor, and then next year's crop may not taste like that. Sure. So to match that flavor every year is very hard. And uh, for any IPA drinkers, especially seasonal IPA drinkers, you always hear the terms, oh, it's better last year. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But it really depends on the hop crop every year. It's a hard thing to dial in. Are you having to adapt faster as the climate is yeah, so every rapidly year, changing? And that's the hard part, too, is uh, our other house beers, Osiris Pale Ale, uh, exclusively with uh, Nugget and Cascade Hops. It's a very classic West Coast grapefruit, orange peel, piney resinous character to it. Every year we do our hop selection from our hop suppliers. They'll send us six or eight different lots of that same variety of hop. Same hop. It could be the same farm, but two lots apart or two fields apart, and they will smell completely different. So for us, it's about matching the same profile we want. Not necessarily the one that smells the best, but what fits the profile that we want. There is so much that I never appreciated <laughs> when opening a beer. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're not just sitting around drinking beers, shotgunning beers all day, and you know, just throwing in hops randomly. It's a it's a process. It's sure. a team effort of about twenty or so people just here, and we're actually a fairly small brewery in the grand scheme of things. In a lab inside a brewing company, there lies a room with little cubicles where tasters use big words to talk about the beer in front of them. Oh, I love this. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like the antisocial ramen shops in Japan. Where you just kind of <laughs> Uh, yeah, people still socialize too much. Yeah. <laughs> what will happen is when you sit down and you spin this around, he's going to give you these samples to come up with. Uh, most of them we're saying true to style. So, you know, visually is sunlight, this sunlight cream, cream ale the right thing? No haziness and that sort of stuff. Head color, color of the beer itself, 
and then you say yes or no. If it's a no, you have to explain why, and then you can move on to the next slide, wow. and so on and so forth. So if you don't know all of the chemical compounds, but you pick flavors, it'll connect it to the chemical compound that that flavor wow. is referencing. How much variance do you get in that sample size when they're like going down into the details? Uh, so it depends. And one thing we notice is we do, we do training sessions. Every Friday there's either a small session or a large session. And the whole idea is to get everyone on the same page. And what Dave kind of talked about earlier or touched on was the idea of having a common language. And that common language is chemical names. And you know, I, no one here likes hearing this, but anything you ever taste or smell is just a chemical. It really is. You can break it down to something that simple of a thing. Uh, people here, most people here are not scientists, so it's always a kind of a struggle to get people to learn big chemical names. But when we're training, uh, Dave brought up the good example of a sialdehyde or acetaldehyde, which to me smells like fresh cut pumpkin. To mm. Dave, it smells like green apple. We have another employee here that smells like black olives. Mm. It's a very weird flavor, and it's all cultural based, it's not based on your genetics. At the end of the day, we're all saying the same thing. So when we're doing our training sessions, we're training on, hey, I don't care what this smells like to you, this is a sialdehyde. This is the language okay. you have to know. And it's a, it's a weird thing because we're all born with the sense to taste and smell things. And we spend our whole lives tasting and smelling things. But how, how often do we put words to what we're actually tasting? Make a vocabulary out of it. And that's the hardest part of doing sensory panels, creating that vocabulary. You know, it's interesting on this podcast, we talk a lot about kind of removing jargon when we're talking to the public. But this is an instant where it's an internal thing within the science. We want to have that jargon. So we're all having kind of like a uniform thing that we're talking about. I mean, there's flavor profiles I didn't even think of, like medicinal, mm. Band-Aid. Yeah, certain species of yeast will produce flavors that taste like Band-Aid or... Wow! Uh, or if it gets too hot. Yeah. Warm temperatures will cause weird flavors, uh, nail polish and acetone, and uh, you get some green apple characteristics, some people taste like butter. light struck. Ooh, good question. It's also known as skunky. You ever, oh, I that yes. Yeah. When a beer is skunked, uh, yeah. what happens is ultraviolet light will hit part of the hop, acid, hop oils and cleave it, cleave a section of it, and create yeah. a chemical called 3-methyl-2-butene-1-thiol, which is what's also in skunk juice. Oh. So skunking literally smells like skunk because uh, hops contain a chemical that can be uh, reacted with ultraviolet light. That's why beer in cans is always better than beer in bottles because they cannot get skunked because light cannot penetrate aluminum. Oh, have you ever had a hoppy beer and you've been outside in the sun in yeah. a clear glass and you're like, oh, wow, this turned in like 30 seconds. That's exactly what happened. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, it, ta- it takes 30 seconds. It's a very quick process. Our journey continued as we toured the production facility and learned how the simple components that make up beer can be combined to form something special. And apart from the equipment needed to make the beer, we saw all kinds of things in the facility designed to make their employees happy. Unfortunately, that footage was eaten by a pair of gremlins, so you'll have to trust me when I tell you that Sun King does actually care about their employees. Which, if you ask me, is a good thing. Anyway, Dave, tell me how to make beer. That was the lab. That was great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So now we're going to get into the nitty gritty. You thought that was intense? So this is our grain handling area. Very humble, but it is. (laughs) On the other side of the wall are two 50,000 pound grain silos. We get one filled up every single week. So we're using one while one's getting replenished. Uh, we're gonna gravity feed in through the feed pro so we can you know, beautifully go, hey, we need 2,000 pounds of silo malt. Mm-hmm. Great, it's just gonna slowly 
bring it into the four roller mill here. It's going to have a very nice crush on it. You're just crushing it when you're bringing it in here? Uh, you're not removing any like husk or anything like that? No, we still want the husk okay. material because we need it for loudering oh, okay. later on downstream. So um, we are trying to get this beautiful ratio of big enough chunks of husk that it can help filter itself out but also get enough uh, fine granules of starch so that we can convert that into sugar. I'm sure you guys have tried brewer's grains before, yeah? I have not. The malt gives us three different things for beer. It gives us color, it gives us flavor, but most importantly, the sugar. Yeast doesn't have a mouth, so we mechanically chew it up over here so we can get to the goodies on the inside. So the, uh, the husk material is going to be giving you that sort of woody, sort of like dried grass uh, character to it. But the, but the inside stuff, as you are chewing it and the enzymes in your saliva are breaking down the starch. It's getting sweet. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's also a little hint of nuttiness. So if you've ever had grape nut cereal in your life, it's a little crackery, it's a little slight nuttiness and a little bit of sweet going on all at the same time. Got it. That is the major building block for every beer that we produce. Uh, but to get darker colors and flavors, the maltster will take that very same malt and they'll roast it and toast it like they would coffee beans to get darker colors and flavors. The starches here have been caramelized, but in brewing vernacular, it's referred to as crystallized. The moisture content's even lower than the last one, which is around 4%. That's why it's shattering more easily. Yeah. That starch has been converted to, to caramel. So here, yeah. <laughs> almost like a coffee taste too. A little bit. So what's happening in here? You can see there's a little variation in color from mm -hmm. grain to grain. You're gonna get, you know, toffee, treacle, burnt sugar, caramel, a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of raisin in the oh, background. Yeah. yeah. So these, all of these colors come into play. So if we're making anything that isn't a golden ale, we'll use some measure of a crystal malt to bring out a little bit more color and flavor. Techniques on malting and crystallizing malt very differently by, you know, we'll, we'll take that, for example, that was from a uh, from an English maltster, and so it's going to be much sweeter than if I gave you something that came from a German maltster that looks exactly the same color-wise, it's going to be more like artisan bread with levels sure. of toast and that sort of thing. So if you've ever had like a Dunkel, Munich Dunkel, mm -hmm. and it has like these layers of like crust and toast on it, it's because of the way that they malt their grain versus the way the English malt their grain or Americans malt their grains. Uh, this is called chocolate malt and you're saying to yourself, mm, Dave, I love chocolate. I can't wait to get after it. Not so fast. <laughs> it's not that sweet. In fact, it's more akin to bitter baker's chocolate. Oh. But if you like uh, coffee without any cream or sugar, then man oh man, this is for you. This is the one for me. Years of ruining my palate with black coffee. And that's just for roasting? That's just more roasting. Wow. Just a higher level mm. of toasting going on. All porters and stouts have some measure of this in it. The darker the roast, the less you need to affect overall color and flavor because of the intensity. And going back to yesterday's uh, interview, 
when we're talking about water profile, our water chemistry because of the alkaline water supply that we have, and then you add this acidity from the toasting and roasting process, then you get to this beautiful pH zone when you mash in, which is about 4.3 to, or sorry, 5.3 to 5.6 in there. So that's really what everything is concentrated on. All of this stuff is great, but if we don't, you know, hit that beautiful pH zone, right. then the yeast is going to start to give us interesting flavors that Kevin was talking about a little bit earlier. Every single country on the planet that can grow grain does so. They have their own terroir for the grain as well. Um, you know, so when we select malt, sometimes based on if we're going to be true to style, like when we make Oktoberfest, we bring in, you know, thousands and thousands of pounds of malt from Germany because we want it to taste very authentic. And I guess I should also ask the question, so when you say malt, are you ta you're talking about a specific grain or you're just talking about a sprouted grain? That is a very good question and one I didn't address, so I apologize. Um, most often when I say malt, I mean malted barley. Uh, but in the case of brewing, like if I'm talking to anybody in brewing, like that could also mean wheat or rye or millet, um, you know, I would spell that out specifically on what that is. So, Got it. Yeah. So what we have going on here, um, we're going to take that grain that's been cracked in the grist case over there. We're going to run it through this flex auger here and we're going to drop it into the mash tun. We're going to add hot, hot water at that point and we're going to steep that grain in hot water. At this point, this is a, very much akin to making tea or coffee. We're just steeping something in hot water to create an extract. Unlike coffee or tea, we're also going to be getting a starch conversion to sugar during this time as well. So once we get that starch conversion happening, we're going to recirculate the sugar water, also wort, W-O-R-T, over the grain bed. And as, that, as we add pressure, the husk material that's probably still floating around in your mouth because it's, you know, it does that, uh, it'll start to kind of lace across itself and self-filter, which is pretty cool. That's Vorloffing, and then we're going to take that sugar water. Once we get a level of clarity that we want and pump it over to our kettle, we're going to take more hot water and rinse, called sparging, to get as much sugar water out of it as we can, out of the mash as we can. Once we get our full kettle, then we're going to start to boil and we're going to add hops. So hops are a cone-shaped plant that grow on a vine. Um, they grow 20 feet in one growing season, burr out, flower, and get harvested, dried, pelletized in our case, and then added. So hops give us three different things for beer. They give us bitterness, flavor, and aroma, and we can affect how intense or not each one of those flavor profiles that we're trying to target are by at what point in the boil and how much we add. Once we're done boiling and adding our hops, we're gonna run it through our whirlpool tank into our whirlpool tank here because we want to separate out any solids from the sugar water. So I'm going to create you know, a nice centrifuge in there. Um, as things are spinning, heavy solids collect into the bottom. You know, we'll get this nice compacted 
bunch of hop matter, and maybe if there's a little bit of grain or something else, uh, coagulated proteins that make it over, they'll all come packed in the bottom. We'll decant hot sugar water. We're off the top of this true pile. Run it through a heat exchanger and run it into fermentation. We high gravity brew here, so we'll run all of this work through a uh, through a flow meter. So we'll just dial in the density of the okay. sugar water, and then downstream we'll check that density level. And if it doesn't hit the parameter that we're looking for, then it'll open up the water gate to blend down. So you were talking about uh, you're you're using pelletized hops. And that makes sense because there's a lot of variability if you're using like an actual flower. But do you do any limited stuff where you're using the uh, the whole hops? Um, when we make uh, wet hop IPAs, we'll use uh, whole cone okay. sometimes. But it's you know it takes up a lot more volume. It's more susceptible to uh, oxidizing. You know. Isovaleric is a cheesy component that happens when hops oxidize, and that's not necessarily a flavor in beer that we want. So yeah, yeah. And I know you have a pretty limited time once you actually harvest the hops to get them into something before they start to oxidize too. Yeah. So the drying, the kilning process or drying process, you know, happens in Yakima. So it's uh, we're very close to hop harvest. I implore you one day to go to Yakima Valley in, in Washington or Oregon and go to a hop farm. It's awesome. The first time I did it, I got off the plane and, you know, as soon as I got out of the airport, I could tell which way the wind was blowing by, because of the particular hop smell that was happening because I knew this, you know, certain farm had centennial hops, so I was getting this beautiful, bright citrus, grapefruity kind of thing happening, and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's coming from, you know, so it's just a cool, nerdy thing. So you mentioned yeah. only a couple places where they grow the hops, and, and what's specific to these locations? Hops grow where, quote-unquote, you know, perfect wine grapes grow, not not sweet wines, not that sweet wines are good or bad or indifferent, but more of the prized wines on the planet are that, you know, special parallel hops and those types of grapes like to grow with longer summer days, hot, but not too hot, cool evenings, just enough rain, but not so much. The hop bind with the cones when they're fully burred out, double in weight, and I've seen with a blast of some vertical wind, you know, knock out 50% of a particular hop in a particular farm, and that's sad. Once they hit the ground like that, there's no recovering. Yeah. Hop production in the U.S. has kind of followed our taking over of the, of the territories, right? And so they continue to follow north. So upstate New York and Michigan and Wisconsin uh, used to be very big hop producers back in the day, a little bit more humidity than say Yakima has or Oregon on that front. So you would get more susceptibility to parasites or other things that are undesirable where they wouldn't necessarily happen out west sure. nearly as sure. much. So then all of that production kind of moved that direction. Well, I, can, I can see that the tank is going further up. How tall are these tanks? 40 feet in the air. Okay. Wow. Yeah, we can pop up so you can Yeah. So basically, uh, what we're seeing in here is 
Oh, about four feet of tank, so about a tenth of the tank, and... Oh, wow, yeah. Oh, my God. So those four tanks approximate uh, almost the rest of the tank farm that we have on the inside. Okay, so by adding this, you've doubled your production. Yeah, because it was, it was outside, so we didn't have to contend with the roof structure. Sure. We could build a building the way we wanted it yeah. to be. After the beer hits the centrifuge, unless it's a hazy, uh, it'll come down here to the bright beer tanks, also called tax determination tanks. They're named that because now it is legally considered beer, and as such, we have to pay federal and state tax. Got it. So we're going to uh, carbonate the beer because we let the CO2 go, which is you know not pleasant for the yeast. Inject CO2 at a pretty high velocity to get to dissolved atmospheres. Each style of beer that we produce has a prescribed atmosphere volume that we want to get to. When we hit that, then we're going to hook the tank up to either our kegging line, which is 70 kegs per hour. It will take a dirty keg. It'll go through a little mini car wash there and get it all clean on the outside, and then go through a several step process of cleaning, sanitizing, and purging steam sanitizing. It'll come down full on the other end, hit a pallet, shrink wrap, out to a cooler. So here a pallet of cans will go up <laughs> the cannabis and then they'll get swept over onto the conveyor and then they'll hit what we like to refer to as a little can roller coaster. Mm -hmm. They get turned upside down, they get hit with 80 ppb of parasitic acid to make sure that there's I mean, the cans are impeccably clean when, we, when they get to us. This is just us being able to sleep at night sure. kind of a thing. So once they get uh, twist, rinse, sanitized, they'll get set up right. They'll hit the machine, triple pre-evac CO2, counter pressure fill. They'll come out here for to the hoist where they'll get x-rayed for high or low fill. If they don't hit the correct weight, or volume rather, they're going to get punched out of the line. Wait, did you say you x-ray them? Yeah. Like all, every single can gets x-rayed? Or? Wow. Yep. Wow. Okay. Yep. The cans after they hit the uh, hoist will then go through an inverter Will they get code dated on the bottom, flip back upright, and then come in through our crating or cartoning machine. So then they'll hit, you know, four pack, 12 pack, six pack, whatever pack size that one wants to be. So you may be saying, what do you do with these beers that are just a little too much or a little too less? Well, we put them in that beautiful shifty machine right over there. This is uh, the greatest soda machine of all time, right? Yes. So if you're thirsty, go ahead and hit a button and get yourself a beer. I feel like I got it for the podcast, right? In the name of science. Yeah. With shift beers in hand, we made our way over to the magical realm of Andrew Hood, who you'll probably remember from the beginning of this episode, to learn about barrel aging. Now, in an effort to maintain journalistic transparency, I gotta tell ya, I've never really been a fan of barrel-aged beer. There's just something about it that didn't really agree with me, and I gotta tell ya... I was totally won over by the beer that I tried in a warehouse filled with barrels in one wooden carousel horse. Maybe it was the atmosphere. Maybe Hood made a deal with some kind of, like, 
long-forgotten entity from the deep realm to be able to create the flavors that he gave me. Maybe I just had bad barrel-aged beer up to this moment. Who knows? But what I can tell you is, my barrel-aged heart grew a little bit that day. And uh, I should probably get that checked out while you listen to this segment. We're going to head over to Hoodland right now and look at some barrels. Here we are in the barrel aging room. This is our sour and funk side because uh, we're doing it at, at uh, ambient temperature. So here we try to maintain about 72 degrees Fahrenheit mm-hmm. and a certain level of humidity uh, so that the barrels don't dry out. And when they do dry out, then they leak. And then all of the lovely liquid we put in there, you know, all that kind of good stuff. So we're going to start more so in the traditional, meaning clean or not um, funked up with bacteria and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, and you can, you can kind of smell the, the faint fruitiness in the air right there, too. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, you can smell a lot of booziness. Yeah. <laughs> Stand back a little bit so you can unmask and take a deep breath. It's oh, yeah. Wow. When I'm having kind of a rough day, um, this is one of my favorite places to come for a minute to chill out because of the glorious smells that yeah. are here. So we do... Uh, a lot of breweries will, will do this fermentation, or not fermentation, but aging at ambient temperature, room temperature. We prefer to do it at a cooler temperature because, you know, lactobacillus is inherent in wood. And, you know, while the spirit that was in the barrels beforehand, you know, there's no bacteria that's going to really affect it. Um, you know, wild yeast, uh, but that doesn't mean that it isn't contaminated. So here, keeping it at just at the temperature that the porosity of the wood is open allows us to keep funky bugs, as we like to refer to them, those fun microbes at bay, but allows us to have the, the beer travel into the wood because the pores are open to go in and get the flavor of whatever spirit or wine was aged in there and also the flavor of the wood and if there's toast and char, bringing that out to the forefront. So are you able to reuse the barrels or is it kind of a one-time use for that beer? It's one and done mostly on this side of it, on the, you know, not funky side. Sure. But on the funky side because we can then kick them out of here and inoculate them back over here so you'll see a lot of wine barrels but also here and those happen to be rum barrels that came out Mm -hmm. of this program as well so over here then when we inoculate them then you know the porosity of the wood is like millions of little condos Mm -hmm. for the bacteria to hang out in and then we bring in the fun flavors are they you know we bring in a fresh food then you know it goes to work which is your favorite barrel oh, in this gosh. room right now <laughs> it's probably the newest thing you got yeah we've got some really fun we've got chocolate whiskey barrels salted caramel chocolate salted caramel mm-hmm. uh, I'm a sucker for rum barrels too so these I are love, the rum barrels those right? are some yeah, rum you, barrels you yeah. can always tell the rum barrels like 
the the nice wine barrels mm-hmm. kind of look like they went to private school. Hundred percent, one hundred percent. Yeah, it's crazy though. Like really, how the salt you know in the air just degrades them mm-hmm. and breaks the wood down and everything. Feel free it's, to drink beer that you I'm totally gonna drink this beer. And also, I've got some. I pulled yeah. some aside too. That you did not try yesterday. Mm. So we, we put a shift in, so yeah. I feel like we can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only too many things. Oh, this is delicious. Thanks, we're not trying to suck. This tastes magical. I'm sorry, I said that like very surprisingly because like you said orange dreams the call and it's just like perfection. As Steffi and I sipped our samples and continued to keep Dave and Andrew from having to do, like, real work for a little bit longer, I couldn't help but reflect on the blend of art and science that led us to the flavors we were experiencing over the past two days. We left Sun King fortified for the journey ahead, back to Gen Con, to bring a little bit of joy to the convention goers, which we totally did. You should listen to that episode from a couple weeks ago, especially now that you know Steffi and I had so many more uh, experience points after visiting the brewery. And now our journey to Gen Con and back has come to an end. Thank you to Andrew, Dave, and Kevin who you've heard from in this episode. Also, a very special thank you to Beth for setting the interview up and everyone at the Sun King Brewing Company for making amazing beer and tolerating a group of podcasters getting in your way as you try to work. Well, that was interesting. You've made it to the end of our Gen Con journey, but there's plenty more coming your way from your favorite SciComm pod well into the fall, so be sure to check us out on social media. I'm on Twitter at James underscore Reed 3 if you want to follow me and see me transition from a toxic Phillies fan to a toxic Eagles fan. Follow the podcast at SciNightPod and visit our website, SciNight.com, for past episodes, links to the stories we cover and the people we talk to, and, of course, our merch. Gotta get those Nine Inch Snails t-shirts while they're there. We're keeping the weekly release schedule up for just a little bit longer with a new episode next Wednesday. And until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz.